The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Eric. I'm the lead teaching pastor here. uh, And we are uh, gearing up uh, for Christmas, which is coming next week. But before we do that, uh, we have to get everything ready. And so I want to just simply make uh, a quick announcement to you that this Saturday coming up at nine o'clock, we're having an all church work day. Uh, And so if you've been uh, coming for a long time, or if this is your first time, I want to invite you to the church work day. We're going to do some stuff around uh, the building. We're going to decorate, uh, and we would love to uh, have you there. I, I want to start this morning by reminding you that this is the Word of God, and that the Word of God is living and it's active, and, and the Word of God is helpful. It is, it, is, it is spiritually helpful for us to really feast upon. It is helpful for us for uh, a rebuke and reproof and correction and, and helping us uh, understand who God is. And, and so throughout the Bible, it tells us about, about God. It tells us about the glory of God. The Bible talks to us about the goodness of God and the righteousness of God. Uh, the Bible also talks to us about who we are in light of God It tells us about how we've all fallen short the glory of God, how we've all sinned, how we've all have walked away from God. It also talks to us about uh, uh, things of the kingdom of God. It talks to us about, about life. It talks to us about righteousness. It talks to us about the relationship that God wants to have with us. Now, to help us understand that truth, a lot of times the Bible uses what we call an analogy. And analogies are all throughout the Bible, and analogies are, are, are examples or, or, or helping us understand how maybe the things like the kingdom of God actually fit and form us even today. It helps us understand some things that God is talking about. Like, for example, if, if Jesus uh, came and he used a lot of analogies that would help relate to the people, he actually, one of the first things he said was, hey, you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They were fishermen, so they understood how to fish. And so he uses this analogy that you're going to become fishers of men. All throughout his teachings, he would say things like, you know, the kingdom of God is like this. And he would point to something or, or illustrate something. The, the kingdom of God is like a master who had a servant, and then he would tell a story about that to help them understand the kingdom of God. He would say things like the gospel. The gospel is like a seed where the sower goes out and sows the seed, and, and some of the seed falls on the path, and some of the seed falls on the rocky ground, and, and some of the seed it falls on fertile soil, and then that seed would produce a harvest. That's an analogy. He, he, would, he, would, he would talk about things about our relationship with God and use analogies. One of the, the main ones, he says, he says, I am the good shepherd, and you are like the sheep. The sheep, they know my voice. They hear me. They follow me. I take care of the sheep. I lead them to green pastures. That's an analogy. Also, how we relate to one another, he says, he says the church is like, is like a body, right? So, so you have like a hand and a foot, and the hand can't say to the foot, I have no use for you, but we are all connected in one body, And so all throughout the scriptures, we see these kind of analogies. But one analogy that is maybe not used a whole lot, maybe because we don't understand the depth of it, is the analogy that Christ gives us that he is the bridegroom and we are his bride. How many of you have ever been invited to a wedding? You get an invitation in the mail? On your seat somewhere around you, there's a little invitation. I want to just point that out, that, that you, today, you're invited. And I want you to, to maybe think about keeping this and putting it someplace where, where you can see it to remind you that you're, you're invited. And so on the back is a place for notes. You can write on that if you'd will. You can keep that. You can put it in your pocket. But sometimes when we get something like this in the mail, we say, oh, that's nice. 
look, so-and-so's having a party. Look, so-and-so is getting married. And then what you do is one of two things. You'd say, let's mark the calendar. Let's save the date. Let's get ready. We want to go and we want to celebrate. Or you start to count the cost and you're like, you know what? I'm not really fond of this couple. Or you think this is going to be a disaster, or you think it's just, it's just too much. I mean, it's too far away. It's going uh, 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 to cost me preparation time. So, so maybe I will send a gift, and that'll be that. Or maybe I won't. And so you can decide what you do with the invitation. Well, I want to tell you that Jesus was invited to a wedding with his disciples, but I want you to understand something, that Jesus was from a region called Galilee. Everyone say Galilee. That's fun to say. So in, in Galilee, uh, it's in Israel, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this region of Galilee, and, and in this region, there's different Galilean towns, like Jesus was from Nazareth, but, but there was a wedding in Cana. And so he's invited to this wedding, this Galilean wedding in Cana. In John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says Jesus was invited. Say invited. He was invited to the wedding of his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's a problem. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour, everyone say hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, if we just simply pass this, we know the story that Jesus then turns water into wine, one of his first miracles. And so, he, but what he says is actually really for every one of us that he says, but my hour has not yet come. Meaning, this is not my wedding. This is not my time. This is not my moment to be united. What does this have to do with me? Which means there is coming a time. There is coming a moment. There is coming a day where it will be his hour. He says, but this is not it. So Jesus, he not only provides wine for the guest. In his statement, he provides hope for the future. A promise of new beginnings. Now, let's back up so we understand what's happening here. You see, in first century Galilee, there was what's called an engagement. That usually happens before the wedding, right? There's, there's, a, there's a betrothal. There's an engagement. And, and, and a young groom or a young bride, for them, this was the most significant moment of their lives, this was something that would change everything. And, and not only was it more significant for the couple, but it was actually significant for the entire town. It was significant for all the people in the area. It was the most significant moment. You see, people would get word or there would be some type of an announcement that there is an, an engagement about to happen. And so what people would do is they would get up and they would, they would run to the main gate. And the reason why that was kind of the, the place where everyone gathered is because that's where the important people hung out. And so they would run to the main gate and, and there at the gate were the elders. And the elders of the town were the only ones who could actually solidify a legal agreement and so there was a, a covenant that's about to be made between a husband and wife. And so the, there had to be witnesses. So surrounding the marriage, surrounding the, the covenant, surrounding the proposal, surrounding the, the invitation were multitudes. Multitudes of people from all over the place. And so not like today where Proposals are done kind of in secret, you know, except for the photographer hanging out in the bush taking the pictures, right? It's kind of a private deal, right? But if you don't put it on Instagram, it doesn't happen, so you got to get pictures of it. So there, there, this, is not a, this is not a private deal. 
But during this, this proposal, during this invitation, during this covenant, they, they would invite, their, of course, their closest friends and their families and the people. And like, hey, today I'm going to propose. I'm going to make a proposal. It's going to be amazing. But what would happen is word would get out that this proposal is about to take place. And all of these people, uh, strangers and visitors from other lands, uh, other towns would come together. And the reason... The reason why witnesses were so important is because you couldn't have a true marriage covenant without witnesses, even to this day. Did you know when a couple gets married and it's time to sign the marriage license, the witnesses are the ones who sign it? Yes, there was a covenant actually made on this day. So there's witnesses. They're witnessing the proposal, the, the presentation, and what would happen when there would actually be a written covenant, kind of like vows, but written down. And, and the, the covenant would be read by the groom's father. He would unroll the covenant, and he would read it, and then it would be the opportunity for the bride to accept the invitation. After this, the agreement would be read publicly. It would then be accepted. And then, and then once the covenant is read, gifts would be exchanged between the families. And, and, and the most extravagant gift would go to the bride. We would think a nice diamond ring. But it was more than that. In fact, contrary to popular belief, a gift would be exchanged, maybe a, a dowry or some money or, or a type of treasure. But this gift, listen, it wasn't to pay the family of the bride for the, the girl. It was not payment for the bride, but rather it was a, a statement of guarantee. An inheritance, if you will. Kind of a, a, an insurance. It was, this, it was this idea that if anything happened to the bridegroom... This is the gift that would take care of things. It was like a guarantee. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul writes in verse 13. He says, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the covenant, when you heard the promise given, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and received him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now what would happen next would actually shape everything what we know about this promise. With everyone watching and with great anticipation, the groom would be handed a pitcher of wine and he would be given a cup and he would pour the wine into the cup. After he pours the wine, he would then, with two hands, present it to his bride. And this is the moment that the bride has the opportunity to either accept the covenant or to reject it. You see, the moment the cup was handed to the bride, this was giving her the, the power to receive the wedding covenant, to, to drink it as an acceptance to his invitation of what was just offered. Now, now listen, this is different than every other Middle Eastern wedding. It's, it's only in Galilee that this happens because in every other wedding, it's just the groom wants that bride and he pays enough and then he gets, gets the bride. But this gives her the opportunity to say, I accept if the bride accepts, she would then drink from the cup. The groom would then take the cup, and he too would drink from the cup. In this way, it is the sealing of the covenant. After they both make this new covenant with one another, 
The groom then says something significantly profound. He says this, you are now consecrated to me according to the law of Moses. And I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it new with you in my father's house. Now, if that sounds significant, it's because it is. You see, during the Last Supper, Jesus would pour wine into a cup. Jesus would pour a cup and he would present the cup to his disciples who happened to all be Galilean, who knew exactly what was happening. And this cup, he says, this is the cup of my blood. This cup represents what? The new covenant. The disciples, they took the cup and they drank. Look in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. You see... Jesus was signifying to them that his blood was the promise. The covenant that they would make together and that they would seal this promise by accepting the invitation by drinking of the wine. You see, Jesus, he's breaking bread. Jesus is pouring wine. And he would set into motion a new promise that would be remembered by his followers even still today. And we're supposed to remember this promise. We're supposed to remember this new covenant. We're supposed to continue to hold fast to it until the day that he returns. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the Lord's blood, the Lord's forgiveness until He comes. Jesus. He invites them to drink of the same cup that he drank. He invites them to share in the same bread, his broken body. So so this sharing of bread and this sharing of cup is a symbol of what is in you is also in me. It is a symbol of a a joining together. It is a symbol of a union. It is a symbol of a common union, a symbol of communion. The Last Supper, Jesus was talking as a bridegroom to his bride. Jesus was talking about a wedding covenant. And all of the disciples who were Galilean disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. And when Jesus says this is the new covenant, they knew it was more than just a Passover feast that would celebrate the spotless lamb being being killed for the sins of the people. This... This was a wedding promise. This was an invitation. But at the end of the proposal agreement, as a young man and a young lady would come and share the cup, after the agreement was made, the people would cheer and celebrate. The promise is given. The invitation is made. The covenant is here. But then they would celebrate, but then they would return to their homes. And the promised covenant was only the beginning 
of what must take place in order for this marriage to absolutely be complete. Because what happens next is the preparations for the wedding. Some of you have planned weddings. They're not easy. There's all these details and, and setups and, and, and organizing things that need to get ready. And so after the proposal is made comes the preparation. Now follow me. Technically, the bride and the groom have been united as one, drinking of the same cup, making a new covenant together at the proposal. But now the real work starts to begin. Because what would happen now is the groom would then leave his bride and they would live apart. The groom would leave his bride and live separate until the day of the wedding feast. The groom would go and make preparations until the day he would come and be united. And what do these preparations include? Well, first, the groom would go and he would build a new room on his father's house. The groom would go and start construction and, and put up walls and roof and, and add on to the father's house. And this would include everything all the way up to the preparation of the wedding, uh, the feast, the new home, the, the furniture, the cups, all of the stuff would all be set. Now, this is profound because Jesus, before his crucifixion, he told his disciples that he was going to leave them. In John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, it says this, let your hearts not be troubled. Why would they be troubled? Because he's telling them, I'm about to leave. But he says, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, what? I will come again. You see, I have to go prepare a place. And I will come again. And when I come again, I will take you to myself. We will be reunited so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying that he personally is going to go prepare a place for his bride. And he's saying, I will come again and I will claim you as my bride and I will bring you to myself and his bride and him will then be together forever and ever. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave before making that verbal promise that he's going to come back. And Jesus does not say, well, he'll come so that he can be where we are. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you to be with me where I am. Jesus is speaking as a bridegroom to his bride. And listen. They knew it. They knew exactly what he was saying. And so although Jesus is speaking in wedding terms that they all would understand, he was speaking about a heavenly realm. That's why he says, my father's kingdom. He's talking about, he's talking about those who would be born again spiritually through faith. Those who would eagerly wait, those who would long, those who would want, those who would desire Christ, those are the ones who would say, well, I'm denying myself. I want you, Jesus, to be my Lord, to be my Savior. You are mine. He says he will come for those. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Those who would receive Jesus and those who would receive his promised covenant by faith would become his bride. But what is Jesus also telling us? Not only that we would be his bride, but he's telling us that there's coming a day where he's going to come again for those who have received the invitation. So right now, as we sit here, 
the bridegroom Jesus is preparing a kingdom place. A place for those who believe. A place for those who have received an invitation. He's preparing his return, meaning his work is not yet complete. But listen, the work of the bridegroom is not only not complete, but the work of the bride is also not complete. You see, the bridegroom would go and prepare a place on his father's house. The bride, though, she would be diligent to prepare for that hour of return when her bridegroom would come and take her to be with him. So she takes time to put together a wedding dress. Your ladies, that's your favorite part. She and her bridesmaids would go and purchase pure fabrics, fine, white, linens and they would make a dress of splendor without spot or wrinkle meaning she was always to be ready for the moment be ready for when her bridegroom comes back to bring her to herself meaning she wasn't just to simply sit and wait around but rather always preparing she was always to be ready because Neither the bride nor the groom would know the day or the hour of the return. No one in the entire town knew the moment that the groom would come back to take his bride. No one knew except for one person. The father, the father of the bridegroom would be the one that determines when the wedding would take place. Only the father who gave the payment for that day, only the father knew the hour in which the son would be able to go and retrieve his bride. Every other wedding in all of the surrounding regions, the wedding would take place on a designated day. That's how you type A people like to plan it. So you send out a save the date, then you send out the invitation to make sure that they got the date right. But a Galilean wedding was different. You see, in fact, no one would know when the day or the hour would actually come. And the way it worked is the bridegroom would go and prepare a place, right? He would prepare the feast. He would get all the preparations. All the arrangements were set. And then he would go to his father and he would say to his father, Father, I'm done. Or in this case, he would say, it is finished. But the father the father would be the one who oversaw the preparations, the building onto the house, the expansion of the home, the feast being ready, making sure there was enough wine. And then the father would decide when it is time, he would announce, son, go get your bride. And look in Matthew chapter 24, just flip the page, verse 29. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 36, it says this. But concerning that day and concerning that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but who? The Father only. See, the moment of the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples, he's giving them a description of his return. And although Jesus says the Father 
Only the Father only knows the hour in which he'll return. Jesus does give us some insight on some events that must take place when that time is drawing near. But listen to me, because I want to be very clear on this. Because the point of Jesus giving us understanding on when the hour is drawing near, the point is not for us to then take those and determine the date or the hour of when Christ will return. The point is to make sure we're ready. That's the point. That we'd be ready when Christ does return. How do we make ourselves ready? By receiving the invitation Today, John 14, 27, Jesus says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives I, do I give you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and now, I have told you, before it takes place, this is Jesus saying, I'm telling you, what's going to happen before it happens? Why would you tell us what's going to happen before it happens? Because so that when it does take place, you would believe that you would receive the invitation. Second Peter chapter three, verse two through four, it says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. The prophets bear witness to it. The disciples bear witness to it. And the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Listen to what it says. They'll be following their own sinful desires they will say, where is the promise of his coming? How long are you going to be deceived and just simply wait? Scoffers will come and say, oh, isn't it about time? Are things not bad enough? Where's your savior? Where's your king? Where's your groom? I thought you said he was coming. Scoffers will mock for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verses eight and nine, it tells us, but do not overlook one fact, beloved. That's bride language. That with the Lord is one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why is it taking so long? Why is God so patient? Why does he delay? Because God is not wishing that any should perish, but rather all shall reach repentance. That is the sign of receiving the invitation, which is repentance. I received the invitation. I received the new covenant. I, I repent of, of going my own way and trying to do things on my own. I need a savior. I need a groom. I need a king. Verse 14 says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent. Everyone say diligent. Be ready be urgent, be eager, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So not only will mockers and scoffers begin to come and say, oh, you say that Christ is gonna return, look at everything that's happening, he's not coming back, but it's going to actually get worse than that. The Bible says that there's gonna be a great falling away, listen. That means those of you in the church will walk away concerning the promise of Christ and his coming. And so the encouragement is that as his beloved, we would remain diligent, steadfast, standing, trusting, waiting, being patient and ready so that when he does come, 
we can respond. It's fascinating that Jesus in Luke chapter 18, he asks a question and he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find those who are waiting? The Bible says there will be wars and talks of wars. There will be increase of evil and destruction. An increase of love for self, forsaking God, forsaking his word. There will be lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. It says there will be a great tribulation and persecution that happens. Look in Matthew 24, verse 13 and 14. It says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Verse 42 then says, therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know on that day your Lord is coming. Why the urgency? Why the eagerness? Why, why is all through the scripture say, listen, be ready, stay awake, be diligent. Don't just simply walk through life aimlessly. Know your God is coming. Why the urgency to receive the invitation and to hold fast to it and be reminded of it every day? Put this somewhere where you can look at it and say, he's coming. He's coming. Why the urgency? 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a what? Like a thief in the night, listen to me. The only way you suffer from a thief coming in the night is if you're not ready for his coming. Those who are bogged down and just busy, busy with the cares of life, never contemplating, never thinking, not really being diligent about the things of the Lord, not preparing for his coming. Well, if he does, he does. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Imagine, imagine a, a, a bridegroom going and preparing all the things that he's preparing and then he comes back to nothing. Imagine the feeling of a groom the anticipation, the waiting, the being united with his bride. Imagine the, the urgency and the diligency of the bride. If you were separated from your man oh, for days, months, years on end, and you're saying, when? I can't wait for him to come. I can't wait for his return. Desiring to be united once again. Until finally all the preparations are made, the table is set, the feast is ready, and only the Father knows the time and the hour that the Son will come. It comes in the darkest hour. He comes at night in the times of the darkest hour. It's what we're living in. He comes like a thief in the night, which is why the scripture tells the bride to keep the oil lamps lit. Keep the light of Christ shining. The ready bride would literally sleep in her wedding dress. The bridesmaids would sleep ready at any moment. The bride would have oil ever in her lamp because maybe, just maybe, 
Maybe this is the night. Maybe this is the night her bridegroom would come and take her to be with him. The reason the bridegroom would come in the middle of the night is because only those who were eager, only those who were ready, those who do not care, those who are not consumed with the cares of the world, but they're anticipating and longing and diligently waiting. But he comes in the middle of the night because there's gonna be many who will not be ready. What are they doing? They're sleeping. Literally and spiritually, they're asleep. And so Jesus gives another warning concerning his return. And this one is particularly for those who think they're ready, but honestly, they're not. Look in chapter 25. Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, say foolish. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, say wise. Two types. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise <clears throat> took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So all of them are sleeping. Some are prepared, some are not. But at midnight, the darkest hour, at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come and meet him. This is a warning for us today because the passage will continue to say that all 10 rose. All 10 heard the call. All 10 got up. But some were left in darkness. The oil in scripture is commonly a representation of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus tells the parable of the sower of the seed in Matthew 13, he says some seed, it sprang up. It had no root. They believed for a while, but when tribulation and persecution would arise, they would fall away. Others would not be ready because of the cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches they choke out the word, and they prove to be unfruitful. In Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus says, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point is this, ten virgins all waiting all made religious preparations, all got all the preparation, you know, they got suited up, they came in to church. They sang the songs, they had the lamps, but they didn't have enough oil to make it through the night. The Bible will call those who persevere, those who are ready, those who are expecting true believers, they're those who are eagerly waiting the return of Christ. The Bible will call them a remnant because at one time there was a bunch, but now there's only a few. There are those who endure waiting for the Christ's return. Only the Father knows the day of the hour until the moment the Father finally looks at the Son and says, Son, rise and go get your bride. The Son would then, in the middle of the night, leap to his feet. He would grab the ram's horn, the shofar, the, the trumpet, if you will. He would, he would get his groomsmen and they would go into the town. And they would enter the town and they would give a trumpet blast, signaling it's time. The trumpet blast would not only wake up all of the townspeople, 
but it would be a signal to the bride. Behold, the bridegroom as cometh. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The wait is over. The groom has finally come. He's finally ready to be united with his bride and bring her prepared to the wedding feast, the table that has been set, the bridegroom and the groomsmen will start to make their way through the town, blasting the trumpet, waking everyone, announcing the time is here, the groom is here, until finally he stands before his bride. She comes before him. She's there dressed pure white, her bridesmaids with her standing face to face with her husband. And after long anticipation, after long waiting, the bride and the bridegroom are finally together again as one. And now, the wedding parade begins. And the way the wedding parade begins is all of the people who were ready would gather into the streets and the bride would then be placed on a stand and be lifted up and she would be carried to the father's house. This would be called her flying away to the father's house. This it was all about God's grace. Through no effort of her own, through no physical strength of her own, it says that she would be caught up with the bridegroom, carried to the Father's house with no merit, no effort, but only the grace of her husband. Her only role was to receive the invitation, to accept the covenant proposal, and to be ready when it was time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, it says, when we who are alive or who are left will be caught up together in the clouds, with the Lord, in the air, so that we would always be united with the Lord. Now after the bride has been flown to the father's house, she's eagerly awaited his return. He carries her across the threshold, placing her at the table, the wedding feast. The Bible would call this the marriage supper of the lamb, where Christ himself would be the sacrificial lamb who by the blood would present his bride holy and blameless, clothe her with forgiveness and righteousness, white and pure in linen. And Revelation 19, verse six, it says, then I heard, <clears throat> then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice, let us exalt, let us give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, it was gifted to her by grace. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen was the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. The Father's house is a picture of heaven. 
when the bride and the bridegroom come together, this is the final destination of those who have trusted in Christ. The table is a picture. It is a reminder until he comes. And everything will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus promised that he would return for his bride and that he would take to be with him everyone who accepts the invitation, everyone who accepts the promise, everyone who receives the new covenant, they will be with him for eternity. But not only will the bride be united with her husband, it says that this also was to save her from the wrath that is to become to those who are left. Matthew 22 <clears throat> Jesus warned about those who do not accept the invitation. Listen to what it says. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited. Go! Get those who were invited to the wedding feast. But what did they do? They did not come. Again, he sent servants saying, tell those who were invited everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. Then the king said, well, bind them and cast them into outer darkness into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When the feast is set and the bride is carried by grace, enters into the Father's house, and all the guests start to pile in, the door is then shut. It's closed. Isaiah 26, 20 says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the door behind you. Why shut the door? Because I need to hide yourself for a little while until the fury passes by. Jesus, he came into the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he will bring them to himself. Jesus is inviting you today. Wherever you are, whatever you've, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, he's calling to your heart today. He's giving you an invitation. He's purchased his bride by his blood. He rose from the grave, defeating death. And Jesus ascended into heaven where he prepares a place for his bride to those who will receive him. Jesus promised he will return. He will take to himself by his grace those who are ready. And so the question is, are you ready? Have you received his promise once the door is closed, those who are out are out, literally would be left behind. Today, Jesus offers an invitation. Through his broken body and through his blood, Jesus offers a new covenant a new covenant of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus offers a covenant of an eternal union with him. Jesus offers this invitation that is to be re re received by faith. Jesus offers a union 
with him forever. But today, today, we're looking forward. Today, we are before the wedding supper of the Lamb, before we're caught up with him, before the trumpet blast, before the thief comes in the night, before all the preparations are complete, and before the Father says, go get your bride. Today, we are offered a cup. Take and drink for the forgiveness of sins. Do it in remembrance of me because I'm coming again. The question that we have to ask is will you receive it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today you offer the greatest invitation that the world has ever known. Today, oh God, you've paid the price. You made a promise. You've sealed it with your blood. And you are calling to us right now to receive this covenant. Today, oh Holy Spirit, would you give us strength to receive the cup? Holy Spirit, would you cleanse us and remind us of the forgiveness of sins? Lord, we, we repent we turn from our ways and we receive you as our great king and great savior and great husband. Today, oh God, would you carry us to this table until you carry us anew to a new table. Wash us with your grace Jesus, we are desperate, completely and totally for you. God, I ask that today we could leave here knowing that our hearts are ready. We can walk out of this worship service knowing without a doubt that we've received the invitation that you've made. And I pray that we would not lose heart. That Life Point Church would be a place that is diligent, that is ready, that constantly every morning and every hour we cry, Lord Jesus, come. Come. We are ready. We are waiting and we want you more than anything of this world. For that, God, we cannot do that on our own. We need you. Oh, Spirit, we need your grace. We need you to clothe us in your righteousness. Let us be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. As I read to you on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood 
that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant that I make with you. Take and drink and do it in remembrance of me. Today, we have an opportunity to receive the invitation first in our hearts and then at the table. If you're here today and, and you would say, I'm not, I, I'm not a believer, I'm not confessed Christ as my Lord and my Savior, then I would encourage you right now, you can do that right where you sit. The invitation stands for you today. You can ask him to forgive you, to wash you and be united with you. And by all means, come to the table. If you're a believer here and you've received that invitation, then this is the time where we get to remember the greatest invitation until he comes. How we do that is we will make two lines. I'll ask you today to actually exit out to the side, go around the back and come through the middle. You can take communion at any of the, one of the four spots. Take your time. And then when you are finished, you can exit back to your seat and in worship. The Bible says that we should examine our hearts to see to it that we are in the faith. If you are in the faith, if you've received the invitation, by all means, let us come and celebrate Christ today. I love you guys. Thanks. Thanks.